they say, well, you know, prove to me that your system works, that it can generate these returns, that it's secure. And so you need to have this track record. And then to get the track record, it's the, you know, the classical chicken and egg problem. Welcome to the Swisspreneur Show, a podcast about startup stories and learnings from experienced entrepreneurs. Here's your host, Sylvan. Benedict, you're very well welcome to the Swiss Panel Show. It's a pleasure to have you here today. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. You're the co-founder and co-CEO at FQX, the hub for tokenized debt. Before we talk about your impressive story and your startup, I actually want to start with your personal background. You are a lawyer who specializes in blockchain law. So first of all, I'm interested to learn more what actually drew you into that very specific field. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's a, it's an interesting story. I uh, studied law in uh, the University of Zurich, and I always had a knack for, I think, the way financial markets work, because I think it's one of the most complex systems that humans have created uh, with very bad things and bad sides and, and also good sides mm -hmm. in a way that it can, you know, enable um, human innovation and... Um, so I was always deeply interested in that. After law school, I then went, um, had the crazy idea to go work at a private bank. Um, and that really was not, uh, really not the place where I would become, I think, really happy. Um, and around that time, that was around 2016, um, I, uh, I did my bar exam. And Switzerland started to become really this hub for fintech and uh, blockchain technology. So the Ethereum Foundation... I uh, just moved to Switzerland, other crypto foundations came here. And then I really saw, you know, this completely new type of financial people in Switzerland, you know, people who are really interested in financial markets, but are doing so from a more ideological perspective. They want to change things. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, also some very crazy people. And I was very uh, drawn by that. And so I started, um, yeah, getting into to blockchain uh, from a legal perspective. Um, and started working at uh, Lucke, one of Switzerland's first crypto exchanges. Yeah, so this is a great summary, right? You basically had your initial interest, but then also the timing, the development mm -hmm. in the market that came together, which mm -hmm. actually draw your attention into that space. Mm -hmm. You mentioned Lucke, where you then uh, did your first adventures in the crypto space mm -hmm. from a yeah, job perspective. What what was actually that you know appealed to you so much about blockchain or crypto specifically? Mm -hmm. What was this spark that you said, hey, this is where I want to spend my time. It spoke to me on uh, intellectual level. Um, it spoke to me on an ideological level. And, that uh, you know, look, it came to market. Many other um, blockchain companies around the same time really wanting to change how people get access to finance. Um, and they often threw in the words democratizing finance, uh, which is, uh, you know, a controversial term in that sense. Um, but I think uh, many, many of them meant it. So they did really think, you know, we can use this technology to emancipate people, to create a more level playing field financial system, and uh, also create, um, or I guess, destigmatize um, the way financial yeah, transactions can work. So, you know, you don't have to be a, a mean banker just taking profit for yourself um, in a sense. So and you can use these, these blockchain 
um, systems to do financial transactions. Uh, but then, of course, you know, things turned out uh, differently oftentimes than, than they are. So one of the first use cases really was people wanted to unbank or bank the unbanked. That was one of the big, uh, there was also a company called Monetas in Switzerland back around the time. Um, this turned out to be much more difficult and complex, right? And then other use cases of blockchain technology emerged and came to uh, yeah, uh, public use. Fantastic. You then also co-founded Lexon Digital, the first human-readable smart contract language. But the project only lasted for about two years. So what went wrong or what were the learnings that you took away from, from that project? Lexon was very interesting. Um, some of the people who started it are still working on it, mm -hmm. um, more on a research basis. Um, I think the learnings I took is, I think there's two main learnings. One is just throwing a bunch of very smart people into one room doesn't guarantee you're going to build a great product um, because the people involved are all like really, really smart, uh, inspiring people um, that I met, um, many of them also blockchain lawyers that I met as part of this global blockchain circus. Um, I met the original co-founders actually on a blockchain conference in Bermuda, wow. where I was uh, kind of just in my first month in Lika invited to um, participate 2017. Um, so that's the first learning, just because you have really, really, I would say, you know, like mathematically smart people uh, doesn't make you, you know, just build a great product. And the other one is building um, a product on top of an innovation that still isn't market ready is very difficult. Mm -hmm. So Lexon was about building a smart contract programming language for lawyers um, so that a lawyer or basically anybody, a layman, could write in simple English a, a smart contract that would then be compiled into a blockchain smart contract code. And I think the idea is still very compelling. But um, so the, the point is, smart contracts back then and still now are not really, really mass market ready yet. Mm -hmm. And so building an innovation on top of something which is still in its infancy is very difficult. Talking about the timing again, right? Exactly. So you cannot really influence it, but you can try to yeah. understand it and ride the wave, so to speak, is one yeah. of our uh, interview guests yeah. once said. You then were not discouraged by, mm -hmm. by that experience because you then started and went on to found your own company. Mm -hmm. So I also wonder, we know where your interest in, in the blockchain technology comes from, but I also wonder where does your entrepreneurial drive come from? Do you have any role models in the family or anyone else who inspired you to become an entrepreneur? Yeah, I think we, some way or the other, actually, all of my uh, my two brothers, as as well as my, my dad, uh, was an entrepreneur. Yeah. So I think it's, it was always in the family. This very strong, I think, urge to, you know, challenge things the way they are. Also, maybe not having the easiest time being told what to do, rather trying to do your own things and do it your own way. Um, and so that's why I think that's where this entrepreneurial spirit uh, comes from, really trying to build something and, uh, you know, needing, I would say, this independence or, or freedom to create. But it doesn't seem that this was always the clear path for you because mm -hmm. you had the detour to yeah. the private bank, right? Yeah. When did you realize that the entrepreneurial path really is the right way for you to, to go? So, I mean, the, the bank detour for me was really just, you know, I, I did my master's in law and I just wanted to have any job, just oh. like, you know, 
actually start working, earning my own money. And uh, yeah, I think for me then working at Lücke, um, where, you know, I was able to learn a lot. Um, there were really, really uh, inspiring people be behind it. Um, I realized I don't just want to be a lawyer. Um, and, you know, it's fine being a lawyer. There are some people who are really good at it. Sure. Uh, but in terms of my skill set, uh, it didn't really, I guess, fully reflect, I would say, my, my horizon or what I can do or what I'm good at. Mm -hmm. And I felt like I actually want to be involved in the business decisions. I want to be involved in strategic decisions. Um, and so in order to do this um, and really to, I guess, apply my skill set in the best way, which is I'm an all-rounder guy. Um, I'm fairly okay at many things, um, but I'm barely an expert at anything particular. Mm -hmm. And so that's when it dawned on me really that, you know, building something um, with, with other people together is what probably best reflects also my skill set. Yeah, what, what you just described sounds to me like the founder's job description. Yeah. So you then founded FQX in 2019. We talked about timing before. Mm -hmm. So why was 2019 the right timing for you to start your own blockchain company? So uh, there are a number of factors coming together. I think, first of all, I felt ready because with, with Lexon, I was just kind of you know, pulled in. We had a very strong uh, main founder kind of. Mm -hmm. um, and I was ready. Uh, I felt I, I had to network um, the experience. Um, and together with the other co-founders, the, the vision um, for, for, for the product. And uh, there were other things coming together as well. So um, we are building, you know, a uh, an infrastructure and platform for uh, tokenized debt. This means you have to be able to create native blockchain financial assets which are recognized in the legal world mm -hmm. um, and with this and it's actually very non-trivial um, you know in some countries these these uh, promises or promissory notes or, or bonds or, or commercial papers are still paper-based and there's very clear descriptions what you have to do in order to bring it in an electronic form or on the blockchain mm -hmm. Um, so at the time, 2019, uh, some interesting things were happening. There were uh, more uh, states and nations um, starting legislation that would allow electronic promissory notes, for example, for the first time. You know, like before a thousand years, this instrument was paper-based and then it was, okay, we can now do it on a blockchain. And so that's also one of the factors that led us to, to then start it. I mean, that's certainly a game changer, right? Yeah. Because suddenly what you try to achieve becomes also legally possible. Yeah, correct. Yeah. That just opens all the gates. Yeah. You mentioned co-founders. You co-founded a company with four people in total, so mm -hmm. you included. Where did you actually meet your co-founders? What was your history or why were you the right team? It was uh, Stefan, the other co-founder, um, uh, and then co-CEO. Um, him, him and I, we go way back. We went to law school together actually um so more than 12 years ago now so there's this very long and uh, deep uh, trust relationship from there we all also did um a uh, academic publication together about uh, smart contracts uh, uh on from a swiss law perspective in 2017 mm -hmm. 
Um, and uh, yeah, and then actually uh, the uh, Frank I met um, also uh, as part of uh, discussions with Lexon. So this was this kind of Berlin blockchain circus. Um, and then uh, Philip um, had met Frank uh, in Germany as well. So this all all this uh, kind of came together. Um, and it was nice because it's a, it's a combination you usually don't really get because uh, Frank and Philip are really senior guys um, with a lot of industry experience. And Stefan and I, you know, as younger blockchain lawyers. So I think that was a it's a pretty unique combination. Yeah. Again, yeah, timing. Mm -hmm. you, you can't it like it is. seems to be a red thing, a, yeah, yeah, yeah. a red line throughout yeah, yeah. our conversation. Yeah. So now, of course, we we talked about how your company was born, but imagine our listeners right now that they don't have a clue about mm -hmm. what you're exactly doing. Mm -hmm. They might not be very familiar with the, the blockchain mm -hmm. world. So how would you explain your product, your service, basically the e-note to someone who has never heard about that before? So the e-note is the most simple form of a financing instrument you can imagine. So in order to get money, um, debt, liquidity, people enter into all kinds of legal arrangements. So you either go to a bank, you get a loan, you have a very complex and long loan agreement. Um, then if you're a larger company and you want to get liquidity, you say, I'm actually not just getting money from the bank, I'm getting money from the public investors or many investors and I issue a bond, um, which again, you know, takes a prospectus to do, um, it can cost incredible sums and it takes a long time to set this up um, some of these instruments still today whether it's the loan agreement or it's the bond um, which is called security um, or in Wertpapier or Effekte um, are still paper-based in some jurisdictions and uh, it's really not standardized across the globe so what we do is we say by bringing together legal engineering and blockchain technology um, we generate or we create the most simple and standardized debt instruments with, with, with which you can do all of the above. You can say, hey, this is between two parties who just want to exchange liquidity between each other, so a peer-to-peer -peer loan. Mm -hmm. But you can also say, actually, rather than just having one e-note between two people reflecting this debt arrangement, um, uh, we can have 100 e-notes and then basically you have a bond um, if it's below one year, it's it's called the commercial paper. Mm -hmm. So the e-note really is um, an enforceable debt instrument, um, which says I owe you a certain amount of liquidity at a certain time. That sounds very modularly. So basically, you can really create almost any use case that you want. Who are your typical users of of that service? It is extremely modular and you can basically reflect any financing purpose with this instrument that you want. Um, and this also is a challenge because, as we said, you know, the potential breadth of use cases is, is, is it's, it's very big. Um, so we are focusing on um, companies uh, from the digital asset space as issuers. So what we do is a, is a B2B infrastructure mm -hmm. right we're not targeting to um we're not targeting um retail um as liquidity providers and we're not targeting retail as so it's not consumer loan anything so any company that wants to get liquidity technically can use it 
but the focus is on companies from the Web3 space. Okay. So this could be crypto foundations, this could be uh, market makers from the crypto space, this can be crypto exchanges, um, etc. And because many of them, they currently don't really have access to the proper banking system. Banks have excluded them for the past years for various reasons. Some of them were just because they said, hey, these guys, they don't have their KYC AML really figured out. Mm-hmm. Others were maybe less less justified, you know, because they were threatened by what they do. Um, and so we want to build a bridge between these companies from the Web3 blockchain space to the more traditional financial space so that traditional financial investors can actually provide liquidity to these companies. Mm-hmm. And with this, we really believe we can, um, you know, contribute to more stability in this new financial system that is just being built. Right. And why is the Web3 focus the right focus for you? Are these companies just more aware of the possibilities that you offer them on the blockchain and therefore also more educated or more mature in that way? Is that the, the main reason? I think it's, it's pretty well well run up in terms of USPs. You know, by bringing the instruments on the blockchain, for example, by doing an on-chain bond issuance, mm-hmm. not only... Can you just digitize it? Because that's, you know, you can get rid of paper, you can get rid of some some manual processes. Um, But you can also rearrange all the parties that are part of this transaction, in a sense. So, I mean, this really has the potential to disintermediate. Mm -hmm. Um, So, whereas in traditional world, uh, for bond issuance, you need, you know, an issuer agent, an arranger, paying agent... You, you need five to six different um, financial intermediaries. Yeah. And um, the blockchain technology can actually, and this is really the amazing thing, can replace some of these roles by technology itself. So rather than, for example, having an escrow agent, um, let's say if you want to securitize your bond transaction, uh, this, this smart contract can fulfill this, this role. So you have a piece of code fulfilling this role. And that's really where I think the big um, emancipatory um, potential comes from. So going back to this, what I'm saying is um, the Web3 companies understand this. They're more educated in this and they have less, um, I would say, a a very traditional um, company building industry goods. They don't have a lot of touch points with blockchain technology. Maybe they're a little bit scared of it. Um, But it's the blockchain companies that know it, um, that know the benefits of the technology. And that goes back to the original kind of vision that we talked about in the beginning. They have been excluded from traditional financial services. So that's why if you provide them with additional sources of liquidity, um, they're very interested in that. And we've seen with the whole kind of CFI, DeFi meltdown in the past few months, mm-hmm. you know, how very unhealthy it is because they were just providing, they were borrowing and lending to each other. Yeah, right. And uh, yeah. we need to stop this, right? Yeah. So. so there's also a bigger need that you fulfill there, obviously, because they have limited access to other alternatives. One thing that really got my attention, what I just described before, the different parties involved in a traditional system with your technology, you have a leverage. You're way more efficient, which also allows you to be much cheaper, I assume, than the traditional way. Now, my question here is, with these different parties that you have in the traditional system, right, that can also be sort of a risk distribution that you lower the risk. 
is with your setup or your system, do you also face any drawbacks or any higher risk compared to the traditional setup? The risk is distributed differently, mm -hmm. certainly. Um, what we've seen is really the big difference is um, just having the title side. So the debt instrument itself, let's say you have your loan digital tokenized or you have your bond tokenized, that's one thing. Mm -hmm. But then also having the payment side. Um, so in a simple transaction, I'm an investor, I give you a loan um, and you give me this e-note, which I then hold as this debt instrument. Yeah. Um, the big difference is once you also do the payment side on chain, because then it's really a delivery versus payment. You mm -hmm. get the token against the payment yeah. and the payment side is, is administered by smart contracts. Um, and so that's where then a lot of effort comes to making sure that the smart contract works. Because rather than in the traditional financial system, if you, you know, send the money to a wrong address, usually you have a legal right to get it back. Um, on the blockchain, um, if you send the, you know, the stable coins, for example, USDC mm -hmm. to a wrong address, you may never get them back. Right. And that's why a lot of em um, emphasis goes into ensuring this, this, this particularly. Yeah. So the risks are different. Mm -hmm. um, I still think they... Um, you know, given how much more efficient on uh, the transactions can be, and you can lower transaction costs tremendously, you can make it cheaper. It's much more quick. Um, you know, there's still so much, uh, you know, many things speaking in favor of it. Right. Yeah. And one thing, you know, you basically also bring two different parties together, or even more parties mm -hmm. than just mm -hmm. two together. Mm -hmm. You have the corporate borrowers, but you also have the institutional users. Which side do you focus on from a business model or acquisition perspective? Is one side more important than the other or needs a bit more push from your side to get on board it? It also always depends on kind of the, the broader, wider market uh, environment. It's easy to find issuers, borrowers, because if you can provide them with new sources of liquidity, um, you know, at, at a similar cost, they're even willing to, to switch systems. Um, or, or a slightly lower cost, but more efficiently, um, they're very interested in this. Um, so that's why um, the biggest challenge really is getting on the liquidity side. Mm -hmm. um, because for these guys, there is a lot of uh, lock-in effects to the systems they currently use. Um, and there's these uh, track record biases, right? So an investor who currently already invests in fixed income instruments or in bonds, and now you want to say to them, hey, you can also invest in these Web3 company bonds um, or short-term debt instruments. Mm -hmm. um, they say, well, you know, prove to me that your system works, that it can generate these returns, that it's secure. And so you need to have this track record. And then the, to get the track record, it's the, you know, the classical chicken and egg problem. So you need to have innovative investors who really see the opportunity here. Um, that you can say, well, by lowering the transaction costs so dramatically, by actually enabling new markets. So these are new transactions which you know haven't been taken place. We're going to mm -hmm. go live with a uh, a really kind of pioneering transaction where a crypto foundation will issue a um, debt security on a digital asset exchange to get additional liquidity. And we're going to facilitate this. So this is going to be wow. really exciting. Um, so uh, keep um, look out for this. Um, it should be should be released in the next few weeks. Um, but uh, yeah, but this needs 
um, innovative investor. That's why we're focusing on the investor side on digital asset investors. Okay. So those who are still traditional investors but have some exposure to digital assets, they know how to deal with the infrastructure. Um, they have, you know, interacted with a wallet before. Yeah. Sure. So you don't have to do too much education there too. Yeah. You mentioned an important word. It's it's also about building trust, right? I mean, you work with traditional, but also with the new kids on mm -hmm. the block, so mm -hmm. so to speak, in the financial sector. So how do you actually build trust around your technology and your offering? Because mm -hmm. the chicken and egg problem, that's a very difficult challenge mm -hmm. to solve. Yep. Absolutely. So um, we build trust um, in a variety of ways. On the one hand... Um, by, let's say, the strength of our team, you know, because our instrument, our system works because it has a very strong legal framework around it. And this really differentiates us from most other blockchain companies or a lot of DeFi plays, you know, basically just very consciously violating regula regulatory law around the globe. Most of these offerings are clearly securities, no matter where you use it. Mm -hmm. And people just have kind of, you know, um, denied that. Um, so that's what, where I think the first layer of trust comes from. People trust that we are, you know, three of our four co-founders are lawyers. Um, we have many more excellent advisors um, that we know what we're doing and we can build this. Mm -hmm. uh, but then the other layer of trust comes from the technology where you say, okay, well, you know, this is a technology stack that you use that I can trust. Uh, we can audit the smart contracts, um, where you can also say, well, this has been audited. It's going to perform as expected. Um, and then I would say the third layer, and this really is, you know, where we're, I would say, a more conservative blockchain startup. For us, it's not about, you know, decentralizing everything. It's not about DeFi to the max. Um, we know that even in a, decentralized financial system that we're building towards mm -hmm. um, parties will always be willing to pay an intermediary for providing trust so that's why also banks they will definitely have a role in the future financial system um, i think it's going to look different than what it looks like today so a bank like credit suisse you know which currently is involved in, in many 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 uh, steps of a transaction from uh, providing custody services, uh, providing distribution of an asset, um, providing the liquidity, etc. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe will be involved in less of these steps, um, and also being involved in the payment. Um, so that's uh, one aspect, um, and so that's why and that's uh, the third point of layer of trust is the our partners, those guys that we work with, mm -hmm. right? So because we're a young startup. Uh, we've seen already the big difference it made um, starting to work with the Swiss Stock Exchange. Um, they are an investor in FQX and uh, we're also in a partnership with their digital asset exchange, SDX. Mm -hmm. And you can really tell, you know, this makes a difference for traditional um, financial institutions that say, hey, wow, you guys are working with them. We don't know FQX, but we know these guys. So if you're working with them, right. this means means you're serious. I think these are some great lessons that you just shared here, right? So it already starts with the co-founding team, basically. Mm -hmm. If you have some senior people aboard, that helps you to build trust. Yeah. And then if you don't have the track record yet, because 
we all have to start somewhere, right? Exactly. Work with partnerships yeah. that you can convince to partner up with you, even if it's just a brand play. Mm -hmm. If you have a big brand like the Swiss Talk Exchange, mm -hmm. that's going to add a tremendous amount of trust. Absolutely. And then the rest will follow if you can survive long enough mm -hmm. to actually make it work and make it happen. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Now, you recently won the Swiss FinTech Award. You have also raised a significant amount of money, more than 6.7 million in funding so far. What is next for FQX? What are your plans for the near future? For us, it's really about now um, taking the next step of evolution in our product vision, mm -hmm. um, where we've built an infrastructure that allows people to issue tokenized debt global level. And we want to take this one step further. And um, yeah, we're going to launch then a kind of new product iteration um, with new features, functionalities, and really fulfilling the vision of bringing borrowers and investors closer together mm -hmm. so that we can actually have issuer of a on-chain commercial paper or on-chain short-term bond, and they issue the asset directly into the wallet of the investor. And that's really what we believe will be the future of the financial system. So that's going to be the next big step. Um, we're currently um, closing a financing round um, that will allow us to get to this next step. And uh, yeah, we'll see what's, what's going to happen from there. With the current environment that we're in, no, to fundraise, it's not the easiest environment mm -hmm. to do so. Also, especially if you look at the, the crypto market where a lot of value has been lost. Yeah. Um, do you feel that as a fundraising startup? Is it more challenging for you to raise funds now than before? Oh, definitely. Yeah, yeah. I think the market environment really flip-flopped compared to yeah. like a half a year ago. Um, so there's much less liquidity in the in the VC market. Um, and uh, VCs have become much more conservative. So whereas before, you know, it was much more easy to get funding based on a compelling vision. Mm -hmm. um, they've just turned more conservative now, looking more at data, looking more at traction, right. um, which I think is a fair market correction that was needed. You know, we've seen the cases with Klarna and, you know, like yeah. super overvalued startups and, you know, just raising them at, you know, 90% less value than they raised the last round. So the, the, the correction was needed. I think also a lot in the later stage phases um, and so in the end, I think we, we will all profit from this, um, but it definitely makes uh, fundraising a bit more challenging. Right. And one last question before I have some shorter questions for you prepared. With your setup, you know, you do things quite differently compared to the traditional financial intermediaries. However, these might be the companies in the future that might acquire you or might be interested in your technology. Do you think that this is even a strategic play that they could pull off because you work quite differently from the way that they used to work. So how do you mean strategic play we can pull off? Like that they could uh, acquire you despite the different ways of operating or is it too much of a difference? I actually think, you know, this is something that we've seen now change a venturing philosophy of, of larger companies or, or larger banks, financial institutions. They realize or their innovation people realize that they are too slow, too much inertia within the institution mm -hmm. so that if they actually start working with the startups too early, they're going to kill it. They're going to kill the project, um, you know, just integrating the product into the banking, um, the core banking system that they have 
it can take years, etc. Right. Um, so some of them have realized, actually, maybe it's better to get a stake in this company and let the startup run independently and separately. And then once it reaches a certain stage of maturity, then you could actually, you know, uh, do do an acquisition. Mm-hmm. If you have a you know very efficiently built startup, and then you have your 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 traditional bank or, or stock exchange infrastructure. Uh, but yeah, we're definitely definitely open to that. Um, given that we we said you know in order to really scale, we need to have strongly trusted partners, mm-hmm. um, and. In the end, we believe we can also change the financial system by building this technology, building this infrastructure. And, you know, if then big traditional players start using this technology and maybe own partially part of it, um, that's, you know, actually what we want to do. Right. So I'm now even more curious to wait for the announcement of your next fundraising (laughs) round to see who's amongst the investors. So to wrap up today's conversation, we have prepared some rapid fire mm-hmm. questions for you. So I either give you a short question or different options to choose from. Okay. And you have to answer in one sentence. You ready? Okay. First one, Ethereum or Bitcoin? Ethereum. Why? Because of the legal aspect to it? I, it's just, I think, more fascinating. Okay. Coffee or tea? Coffee. Have you ever regretted an investment that you've made? Yes. Which one? <laughs> uh, if you're open to disclose. <laughs> there was an ICO in Switzerland I participated in. Okay. Like uh, many, we, part- we regretted it. Yeah. <laughs> like that. That's part of the game, I guess. <laughs> early bird or a night owl? Um, I guess because our investors are called early bird, I've uh, been in a conflict situation here. Uh, no, I'm rather a night owl. Beer or wine? Beer. And the last one, lawyer or entrepreneur? Entrepreneur. Clear choice for you. Benedict, thank you so much for stopping by. Lots of success and all the best with FKX and whatever you'll tackle in the future. Thank Thank you you so much. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, you can support us by rating our show on Apple Podcasts. This way, we can reach an ever-growing number of aspiring entrepreneurs.